0: Well, having sung the fourth psalm, uh, would you now turn with me to it, uh, which in your Bibles is page 544 in the Green Bibles and 842 in the Large Print Bibles, Uh, Psalm 4, and I'm going to read the psalm for us. So, Psalm 4 for the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from distress, have mercy on me, and hear my prayer. How long will you, people, turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous And trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, Who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. I've called this sermon, Who Will Bring Us Prosperity? Who Will Bring Us Prosperity? Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, our current chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, presented his autumn statement to the nation. And in this uh, statement, he explains the, the state of the economy and he, if he chooses, can make changes to tax and spending commitments. And in this last autumn statement, with an election coming up, there were what the press describes as giveaways. So, reduction in taxation to please voters before a general election next year. And the reason governments do this is because the state of an economy is always one of the number one factors in deciding who wins an election. In fact, if an economy is doing terribly, a governing party very rarely will get re-elected. In fact, if you read uh, uh, hi- a history of, of times when extremist governments get in place, it is usually because of a terrible state of an economy and so the, the, for example in the 30s the rise of of parties like the Nazis in Italy and and uh, earlier on Mussolini in, uh, Nazis in Germany rather and earlier on Mussolini in Italy the reason because of a terrible economy uh, during the Great Depression and in deciding on who to vote for in our country next year Many people will be asking the same question we read in Psalm 4, verse 6. Who will bring us prosperity? Who will bring us prosperity? But people don't just ask this at an election time. People ask it in terms of the direction of their life. The life I'm going to lead, the the kind of philosophy or the, the people I'm going to follow are the ones who will bring us or bring me prosperity. Now, God's people, the ones who are singing these psalms, know that the answer to the question of Psalm 4 is God himself. We know that is the answer. I'm not going to stand here and tell you, if you follow someone else, they'll they'll make your life way better. Of course I'm not going to say that. But... What I will say is that as God's people, we may well sing this psalm, but sometimes we struggle with doubts and we wonder, is God really the answer to this question? And Psalm 4 helps us when we are doubting whether God is the answer to the question, who will bring us prosperity? What Psalm 4 shows us is that God alone gives us True prosperity, the prosperity we really need, not necessarily riches and and power and fame and so on, but what we really need, which at the end of the psalm we see is a prosperity that enables us to dwell in safety, the safety of his presence. This psalm actually is linked to Psalm 3. Uh, Notice uh, words are repeated in Psalm 4 that we've seen in Psalm 3, words such as, Glory, uh, many are saying, and lying down and sleeping. And Spurgeon, um, always very quotable, says that Psalm 4 is another choice flower from the garden of affliction. Another choice flower from the garden of affliction because Psalms 3 to Psalm 7 are various Davidic psalms showing us David's suffering in various ways. The third psalm uh, was his great crisis with his son Absalom. And Psalm uh, 4 answers the question of what do we do when we doubt that God will bring us prosperity? And there are other situations of, of, of struggle and suffering which we'll see in Psalms 5, 6, and 7. And although we don't have a a superscription that tells us exactly what was going on in Psalm 4, we can glean from the words of the psalm what was happening. At some point in David's leadership, there was some kind of drought. Psalm 4 is written in a bad economy where people were questioning the rule of David. Not a democratically elected leader, but God's Messiah. People were questioning the anointed king that God had set in place, King David. They were questioning him and saying, Is David the one really to bring us prosperity? Is he really God's king? Is he really the Messiah? We get the question from verse 6, but notice in verse 7 how there's a mention of grain and wine abounding in the future. And so it appears that there is a drought in the land... And David is being blamed. And in the midst of this drought, people are questioning God's king, and in doing so, are questioning God himself. For it is God who put David on the throne, it is God who anointed his Messiah. And for us today, Jesus is God's king, and sometimes we can doubt whether he really is the Messiah. will lead us to true prosperity. For us today, we could expand this theme of, of drought to various situations we may face where we ask the question, who will bring us prosperity? So for some, it may be suffering ill health or bereavement. For some, it may be some spiritual drought where you're just not excited about following jesus or not motivated to to serve him and you're wondering is it worth it is this the life that i'm supposed to lead for some it may be suffering that comes from other people that don't want you to follow jesus and they're showing you other ways of prosperity but for some and the this is the main thrust of the psalm it may be a lack of something of money or material things a lack of a spouse. Or a level of lifestyle that you want. And it makes you question God's goodness. Will he bring us prosperity? And it's in this situation of drought that makes people question David's leadership. And it's in situations of those kind of droughts in our lives when we doubt King Jesus. And David shows us in Psalm 4 what to do in those times. And I think there are three movements through this song. Uh, First of all, we're going to see where to go in our distress. Secondly, what to do in our doubts. And thirdly, who to trust in our droughts. So first of all, where to go in our distress. David goes to his God. But in doing so, we first of all see David's position Before this God. Notice that he calls out in verse 1. To my righteous God. Some translations say. God of my righteousness. And either either can be right. The point is. God is righteous himself. And God is the one who makes us right with him. David can call on God in his distress. Because God has made him right. God is right. And God will thus do what is right. And for us, God has forgiven our sins. He's made us right with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And with this righteousness given to us, we can approach God and trust him to do what is right. That's our position as his people. We can go to God as people made righteous by him, knowing that he will always do right by us as his people. When we have our doubts, the first place we need to go is to God. He understands that we have doubts. He's approachable even with our doubts. We can say to God, God, I'm doubting you right now, help me. We can go to him in our distress. So first of all, we see David's position there But in the second half of verse 1, notice David's petition. His petition. It's threefold. He says, first of all, give me relief. This literally means make a space for me. David uh, kind of feels hemmed in and pressed down. And it's like in in modern kind of words, he's in a tight spot. And he wants God to get get him out of this, this tight spot. Give me relief. Secondly, have mercy on me. Uh, Some translations have, be gracious to me. The idea is, give me favor. Respond to me with your favor, O God. And then thirdly, he says, hear my prayer. Respond to what I am saying. And God does these things for us as well. He relieves us. He has mercy on us. He hears our prayers. David may have been thinking of the past and how God has given him relief before. He may have been thinking in the past of how God has shown him mercy and how God has heard his prayer. And we can also look back from our experience and see the same. God has forgiven our sins. He's gotten us out of the tightest of all spots. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God was gracious to us. He showed us mercy and when we call on his name he answers our prayer for forgiveness and new life god has a a track record of helping us in our distress a track record of helping us in our distress and so after noticing david's position and david's petition in verse two we come to david's problem And there are two sentences that show his problem. First of all, notice in verse 2, how long will you people turn my glory into shame? The word for people here means people of high rank, the leadership in society. So the leaders in Israel were turning David's glory into shame by rejecting him as their king over them. So this isn't something necessarily we pray for ourselves about our glory. This is about the Lord's anointed, his Messiah. And we'll see this often in the Psalms. When we read the Psalms, often what we want to do is read ourselves into it. And we look at David and we think, yeah, I'm just like David. I understand what David's going through. And there's an element where that sometimes is true. But normally in the psalms, we should put ourselves in the place of God's enemies who who have been against him. At least that's where we once were. We were his enemies. In this psalm, we are those who are doubting God. We are those who are saying to, to, to God, I am doubting that you are the one who will bring us prosperity. We are the ones who are tempted to turn the glory of Jesus into shame. And so David's praying here, how long will you people who are God's people turn my glory into shame? The attack is on the, on the Lord and his anointed like we see in Psalm 2. So that's the first, uh, first uh, part of David's petition. How long will you turn my glory into shame? Notice the second sentence. How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? In seeking a way... <clears throat> Out of drought, through not trusting King David, they are looking elsewhere, specifically to pagan deities who promise much. They think perhaps another God will provide for us. In the ancient world, the, the king was responsible for rain. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not fair, the king isn't responsible for rain. In our country, we'd probably want the king to to stop the rain. But in the ancient world, people wanted it to rain in order to grow crops. But we're not going to depose King Charles if he doesn't make it stop raining. But in the ancient days, the king was supposed to have a hotline to the gods. And if he couldn't access them and bring rain, well, there was a whole plethora of gods that people could call on to do the job better. And those other gods, we read here, are delusions and they are false. Notice that in uh, verse 2. Delusions and false, or some translations have lies. Those other gods are vain, they are full of lies, they are delusions, they are false. In fact, the wording here is very similar to what we read recently in Colossians chapter 2. Where we read, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. And when times are difficult and we feel like we are not prospering and life is going wrong, it is tempting to doubt God and to go after another one. A hollow and deceptive philosophy. But in doing so, going after something else we're going after something that is empty that is deceptive and that is false full of lies what people were doing in David's day is what Paul says in Romans 1 is going on in our day they were exchanging the glory of God for shame and we read about this in Romans chapter 1 for though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And notice what the foolish thing they did is and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged God's glory for something created, and it's a foolish thing to do. And it can be tempting for us to begin to go down this road when we are doubting God's goodness. But let me just say in Romans, Paul shows us very clearly it is a foolish thing to do. Uh, a, a couple of year, years ago, we um, went to a museum where we saw uh, Van Gogh's Starry Night, the original. Painting. But in the shop, there's a whole load of prints that you can buy for like £5 or something, depending on the size. Now imagine for a moment that I own that Van Gogh painting. I own The Starry Night. And I go to an antique shop and they happen to have been and bought a copy of the print. But imagine if I go into the antique shop and I say, I tell you what I want to do. I want to swap this original. Van Gogh Starry Night. I want to swap it for one of your uh, copies that, that you've bought for a fiver. The antique dealer would look at me and, and go, yes, please. <laughs> and then go away and tell his friend I had this real stupid man come into my shop the other day and I caught the real thing in exchange for a print. Now, it is a, wouldn't that be a stupid thing to do? That's ex- it, it, that is less stupid, less stupid and less foolish than exchanging the glory of God, the incomparable glory of God, for anything else. And so when you're tempted to doubt God and go after a false God, it is a foolish and stupid thing to do. I urge you, don't do that. Instead, instead of that, the first thing to do is to bring our distresses to God, our righteous God, as David does here. Where do we go in our distress? When we are feeling the effects of drought, we don't go to pagan deities. We don't go to hollow and deceptive philosophies of this world, but we go to our righteous God who has made us right with him, who is right and who does right. And we take our doubts to him and we say, Lord, help me. Help me when I'm doubting you. Help me when I'm having these feelings that that you're not good. Help me to see your greatness and your goodness. And when we bring them to God, he shows us how to respond. And David, speaking God's word to us, shows us then, number two, what to do in our doubts. And David offers four words of counsel to those who are doubting that God will prosper his people. First of all, in verse three, he tells us, To know who rules. Know who rules. Notice verse 3. Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. The faithful servant set apart here refers mainly to King David. Note the link to verse 1. David is calling out to God in verse 1. And here David says the Lord is hearing him. Now, we can say, and we are, set apart for God ourselves as his people. And he does hear our prayers. But the meaning here is deeper than us. It's about how David as the king is set apart by God as king. There is not another king that will help his people. It is David who God has chosen. And David points us forward to Jesus Christ, the forever king from David's line. And Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, set apart from God, who is established on the throne forever. And he is the only king. He is the Messiah. There is no other. And when doubts and fears assail us, we have to know Jesus is king. Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus is still reigning. And knowing that Jesus is our king and meditating on that fact and remembering again that when he died for our sins on the third day he rose from the dead defeating death and he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the father when we remember that truth it helps us with our doubts because whatever other philosophy or whatever other false god you may go after it did not rise from the dead Jesus did and only Jesus did so no. Your king. But secondly, at the beginning of verse 4, we see that we're to honor our king. Honor our king. So at the beginning of verse 4, we're told to tremble and do not sin. Uh, Trembling means to be in awe or to fear God. Uh, Some translations have be angry and do not sin. That would mean that we can be angry in a situation that is not good. So for example, uh, when we're, we're suffering a, a drought, we can be angry at injustice and, 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 and bad things that are happening in our world and in our lives, but not sin by blaming God and, and saying, God, it's all your fault and I'm going to worship another God because I'm angry with you. That's the wrong response. So the word can be translated that way but tremble works too when when we know that God is king and we've've've we've, we've gazed upon His glory, then it should cause us to tremble, and when we tremble, I mean because we see how amazing God is, it helps us not to sin. I mean, basically, any sin that we commit is done when we are not fearing the Lord, when we're not trembling again Spurgeon's uh, good for a quote here he says how many reverse this counsel and sin and tremble not rather than tremble and sin not? A lack of awe and a laxity with sin causes us actually to doubt more or not even care. It certainly won't prosper us in the end. So that's the second counsel, honour the king. Thirdly, Search your hearts. The end of verse four speaks about when we are on our beds. And when David's speaking about being on your bed, he's speaking about a place of of quiet and privacy. I'd like to think when David wrote this, his children had grown up (laughs) rather than as, as young children. I don't remember my room ever being a place of quiet and privacy when the when children are small. But David is saying here that on your beds is a place where you have a quiet and peace and privacy so that you can spend time reflecting on the state of your heart. So to be silent here means to, to stop and to think. Why am I doubting? Am I discontent with God? Is there a sin that I'm not repenting of? What is God teaching me through this situation? And to spend time thinking through those things. And sometimes God brings calamity and drought in our life in order that we do stop and think and consider him again. When life is easy, we can be easy to forget God and calmly and peacefully be led away from him. But calamity comes and it can cause us to stop and to think. So search your hearts. Is the third council, And then finally, in verse 5, we're to trust and obey. Or, or actually, in the order here, obey and trust. Because first of all, we're told to offer the sacrifices of the righteous. Uh, in the Old Testament law, that referred to the sacrifices prescribed in the Mosaic law. But for us today as God's people, Romans 12 and verse 1 tells us, what it means for us, where Paul writes, "Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. So we are to give our lives, our everything, to God in total worship. And as we do this, we trust in the Lord that we're doing the right thing. We don't offer up our worship to God in the vain hope that it might help us. No, we we trust in the righteous God, our Lord, our covenant-keeping God, that we do not labor for the Lord in vain. And when we trust him like that, we, we willingly and joyfully offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. So this is the Christian response to doubt. We bring it to God in prayer. We remember who our king is. We honour our king, we search our hearts, and we give our lives to worship of our God. That's the Christian response. But there is another response that is the response of unbelief, which we find really at the beginning of verse 6. So David says at the beginning of verse 6, Many Lord are asking, who will bring us prosperity? The many are asking here, who are asking here are the ones who are looking to the pagan world with all the options available to them. They're asking this because they're not sure that God is really the answer. And so they look at the other options available to them. Hedonism, other religions, philosophies, traditions, and so on. But in this psalm in particular, it is material things, the grain and the wine that they are looking for. They want to follow whatever God will give them the most stuff. And I think this speaks greatly into our culture today, doesn't it? Even politically, people are furious about so many moral and global issues, but their fury subsides very quickly when to do something about it has to cost them something. So how many celebrities are furious, flying around in their private jets, venting about climate change? But they're not going to give up their private jets to help the environment. How many people who claim to know just what to do in the Middle East have sacrificed any of their own time even? to understand the history and complexities of that issue? And how much would they really be willing to sacrifice of their own material wealth to help in any way whatsoever? It's easy to go on a march when it doesn't cost you anything. But we live in a culture where material prosperity is the priority over and above almost anything else. And people get very worked up until it costs them anything at all. And sadly, it can be easy for us as Christians to fall into the same trap, for us to be primarily about material things, more money, more stuff, better lifestyles, bigger holidays, and so on. But David shows us that there is something of more value than pounds, prosperity, and playthings. When we are doubting God because life is going wrong, rather than going elsewhere for prosperity, he shows us, number three, who to trust in our drought. Look at what David says true prosperity is in the second half of verse six. So many Lord are asking, who will bring us prosperity? David's answer, let the light of your face shine on us. David here is referring to the ironic blessing found in number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. To have God's face shine on us is to know and experience his blessing upon us. It's to know God's favor. It's to know sins forgiven. It's to know eternal life. It's to know that there is a future prosperity coming, which in every way, materially and otherwise, far outweighs anything that we could have on this earth. God's help, God's presence, God's promises are better than all the riches in the world. Again, Spurgeon says, Christ in the heart is better than corn in the barn or wine in the vat. Christ in the heart is better than corn in the barn, or wine in the vat. It doesn't necessarily make drought easy, but there are worse things than a lack of possessions. A lack of God is far, far worse. And when others are prospering, Even those now speaking against him, David asks God in verse 7 to fill his heart with joy. David has a a deeper joy than what material things can give him. Those speaking against him seem to have joy in stuff alone. Stuff that one day will disappear and be seen as a vanity. I don't know whether they had the uh, 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 tips in Israel at the time. But if you want a good exercise in um, how foolish materialism is, just take a trip to the tip. And all the things you know people are fighting over and saving up for and, and trying to get and, and, and live for, just are piled up as a bunch of rusty items in a tip. And I think this is such an important message for us as we lead up to Christmas, isn't it? Today is the first Sunday of Advent. And we are bombarded... With advertisements at this time of year, and many people go into debt over presents. I used to work for a mortgage company uh, in the IT department, and I, I was there in, a, in January, and they had to have o- people working overtime in arrears, chasing people for the mortgage payments, and they couldn't afford the mortgage payments. Why? Because they'd spent the money in December on Christmas presents. It was terrible. And, they, and, and in those departments, people were working night and day, phoning people to pay their mortgage. And it's easy for us to get sucked into Christmas being all about presents and stuff and to miss the greatest joy of all. Christ has come to save us from a far greater poverty and has given us far greater riches than anything this world affords. In fact, Christmas is about generosity, starting with the fact that God, what did he give? He gave himself. The Father gave his Son. That's what Christmas is about for us as his people. And when our hearts are filled with that joy that we see in verse 7... We then can become generous ourselves. Rather than holding on to it and desiring more, the prosperity that we do have can be shared with others and bless others. And we in turn are more blessed by giving than receiving. That's what Christmas should be all about. And because David's trust is in God, in verse 8, he can sleep easy. You know, those whose God is material things, those whose God is all about getting more stuff, they don't sleep so easy because they're so stressed out. I mean, Christmas time, you see this in particular, people can get so stressed out all the time over buying stuff. Not David. I mean, he didn't celebrate Christmas. Jesus hadn't come yet. But David went to bed and he slept sound. Why? Because his joy was in his God not in the wine and the grain. How stressful can life be when it's all about stuff? And having lots of stuff even, when you've got it, can be stressful because you're trying to keep it tidy and clean and you know, chasing the upgrade and stress, right? Think for a moment. In your life, what is most of your anxiety over? I would guarantee for some of us here tonight, most of our anxiety is, is over stuff, things. And material possessions are so insecure, nothing really lasts. But David knows that true riches are found in Christ. And when our riches are found in Christ, we found riches that are eternally secure. Because God has them. And so David dwells in safety. The greatest prosperity is the presence of God, and God has given us that through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who is God's faithful king, who left the riches of glory to be in poverty on this earth, that we might have the riches of his glory. So Paul says it, clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He died for our sins. The greatest debt that we ever had has been paid in full, and he has given us eternal life. And when he returns there will be also material glory too in a new world where all that robs us of any kind of prosperity here will be no more. Who will bring us prosperity? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has done it, is doing it, and will do it forevermore. Don't exchange anything even when times of drought comes, don't exchange anything for the glory that we already have in Jesus Christ. That's true prosperity. Well, we're going to close with a final song that speaks of the true prosperity of the gospel and how when we have doubts, God In his mercy and his grace will hold us fast. Let's sing, he will hold me fast.